0: parables that Jesus told in the New Testament, and tonight we come to a really famous one, one that a lot of you will probably be familiar with, and I think that that's actually pretty dangerous for us to be really familiar and comfortable with this parable that I'm about to read because this is one of the most insane things I think that Jesus ever said. And it's really easy for us to read it and to hear it and to respond to it the way that you kind of respond to a boring class if you're kind of just bored and you're like texting your way through it. And you miss how insane and explosive these words are that I'm about to read. So I'm going to read it and my prayer is that, and my hope is that you'll be really undone and rattled and agitated by what you hear read. So to that end, let me go ahead and read it. This is from Luke 10. This has been called the parable of the good samaritan and it begins like this. And behold a lawyer stood up to put him that's Jesus to the test saying teacher what shall i do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him well what's written in the law how do you read it? And he answered you shall love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him you have answered correctly do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who's my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him pass by on the other side, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let me pray, and then we'll consider that little passage together. So let me pray. Father, thank you for um, tonight. Thank you for this chance to read your word and to be confronted with it. And I do pray that that's what your spirit does with it. That even those of us in this room that um, claim to know you and those of us in this room that don't yet know you or don't care to know you, I pray that these words would arrest us and confront us and shake up our expectations of what it means to, to know you and to live in this world. And we would pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this past summer, I and uh, some of my friends from uh, my neighborhood and my church joined a sand volleyball league, believe it or not. So, you know, you've got this team of six of us with our wives, you know, we're, you know, in our mid-30s. We're decently athletic, but, you know, we're a little kind of out of shape. It's been a while since we've done, like, organized... Uh, Athletic events, but it it was great because I got to I got to tap into my like high school competitive self, and I got angry again at other people on the court, which felt good again for the first time. And so uh, we played this league, and we weren't that great. Uh, Our league, you know, the, the league was there were a lot better 30-year-olds out there than us, and so we lost a lot of games. But when the league was eventually over, we heard of this opportunity to play one last game together because the guy who kind of organized our team was friends with this woman who oversees the Knoxville like Homeschooling Association. And there was a team of high school girls, homeschooled high school girls, that wanted some practice and so wanted to play us. And so my immediate thought was, um, as much as I love volleyball, that feels a little inappropriate to just play this game with these high school girls and just crush their dreams and their <laughs> hopes and just who they are as people. And so that, I was like, that would be fun. I don't know if I want to do it. But we eventually agreed to do it. And we, so it was not going to be sand volleyball. It was going to be in a gym. We scheduled it to, to, to reserve the gym at Pellissippi Community College. And so drive up there with my friends, and we walk in the gym and I've had to repent over this, but my expectation when I walked in that room was I'm going to see six to eight uh, uncoordinated girls wearing full-length denim dresses (laughs) and that it's just going to be awkward. Um, But what we walked into was a group of about 18 to 20 girls in matching professional uniforms with knee pads all at the net... Practicing like spiking drills. And they're like jumping up and smashing it. And it's reverberating off of, you know, it's like loud. And it's we're automatically now freaked out and intimidated because here, me and my five friends are rolling in in our dad bods and our like <laughs> baggy gym shorts and like our basketball shoes from like high school. And so we go and we start stretching up against this like well-oiled war machine that's getting ready. And the... The game was embarrassing. They destroyed us and all of our manhood in the process. And uh, when the game was over, I just—I had to repent. Like all of my expectations were destroyed. I I've totally thought one thing. Got another. Not only were my expectations destroyed, the game. You know, it was just, it was a bad night for us. And um, the the reason I begin that way, is because I think Jesus is doing something very similar in this passage. That He takes a set of expectations that you have, and He just like drops a nuclear bomb on them. And the expectations that you have that are about to be blown up are what you think about when you think about the word love. That's what he does. He takes our understanding of that word love and all the images that we've pre-set and imported into what we think that word means, and he just blows them up and tells us something that's actually insane. Because I don't know what you think of when you hear that word love. My guess is for a lot of you, you think of like Hollywood romance. You think of a couple at a candlelit dinner. They're staring into each other's eyes, and it's uh, a picture of roses or hearts or whatever. And Jesus says, those images don't work for love. Actually, the images are more like blood and tears and dirt. And it's not like what you think it is. So what I want to do is I just kind of want, I want to walk through this passage quickly so that we're kind of all on the same page about what he's saying. And then I want to show you that he's making he makes four different points about what love really is. So that's what we're going to do. So let's look at the story. The story begins, context starts in verse 25, where it says that a lawyer initiates this conversation with jesus now when you and i think of the word lawyer we think of like law and order svu we think of judge judy courtroom settings but this was not a civil lawyer this was a biblical lawyer someone that was well versed and studied and taught the old testament law so it may be appropriate to think of this guy as like a seminary professor or like a bible scholar so Bible scholar steps up to Jesus to talk to him. And the context is this, that Jesus has been on the scene teaching, talking a lot about God and about God's love and about God's kingdom and about God's law. But the problem is, is that Jesus has been hanging out with people like that we would consider modern-day strippers and potheads and alcoholics and white-collar criminals, people that obviously don't care about God's law. So this Bible scholar steps up to Jesus, and it says in verse 25, it says to put him to the test, to trap him, to basically trick him and expose Jesus into, uh, you know, for him to kind of reveal that Jesus is a sham. He doesn't really care about God's law. He's He's a fake. So he throws out this question in verse 25 as you see it. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And his expectation was that Jesus was going to say something like, well, you just need to accept me as your personal Lord and Savior, and it doesn't really matter how you live. But that's not what Jesus says. How Jesus responds is he responds to that question with another question, and he says, well, what's written in the law? Like, you're the Bible expert, bro. Like, how do you read it? And the guy answers the way anyone in that day and age would have just summarized the the Old Testament law in kind of a nutshell. And the way that he summarizes it is, well... What God wants from us is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus is like, A plus, that's great. Do that and you'll live. High fives. But this guy does the same thing that you and I would do if we just stopped and thought about it for a second, which is, um, what do you mean by that word neighbor? If God's requiring me to love my neighbor, like Who counts? certainly that doesn't mean everybody I'm not responsible for loving everybody because if you were to think about if this conversation were to happen in our day and age you could imagine somebody saying like the Syrian refugees like think about the just there's tons of them like I'm not responsible for caring for them am I or the like millions of people in Africa without access to clean drinking water like them too? And what about like, the staggering poverty in India? And just like the countless females that are abducted and just brought into the sex trafficking industry. Like, I'm responsible for that too? Or just think about like, the, the poverty situation in Knoxville alone. This guy's asking the question you and I would be asking, which is, wh- what's the cutoff? Like, certainly you don't mean everybody. And to that question of what do you mean by love your neighbor... Jesus tells him this story, and he's he's making up this parable, and he says, "Okay." And he sets it up. If you noticed, it takes place on this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is which was a famous stretch of road that was known for being really dangerous. So his context for this story is like a really dangerous neighborhood. Picture the kind of the neighborhoods in your hometown that you don't want to be caught in at night. And he says that's where the story takes place. And here's this guy, this Jewish guy who's just going along. And he's at the wrong place at the wrong time. And he gets jumped by this gang. And they beat him up. And they steal everything from him. And they just kind of leave him on the ground bloody. And just so happens that there's this priest that walks by and because he's a big, you know, he's a priest, he's like going to preach the Bible to a bunch of people. He's thinking, I've got got a congregation waiting on me. I can't like waste my time with one person. What I'm doing is really important. So the pastor kind of like walks by him and keeps going and then it says that a Levite comes up and a Levite would have been kind of like the modern day version of the guy in your church that helps out with like a small group of high schoolers and he's like, dude, there's 15 juniors in high school from Bearden waiting for me at Panera to do a Bible study in Philippians. I can't like, just leave them hanging and take care of this dude. What I'm doing is really important. And it is. And so he says, somebody else surely will come along and take care of this dude. And so he goes off. And then it says the last guy, this third guy, walks up to this crime scene. And it's a Samaritan. Samaritans in Jesus' culture were seen as like the way that people in the Harry Potter universe saw mudbloods. They were not Jewish. They had intermingled with a foreign nation and therefore they were seen as racially inferior. And their religion was different. They believed weird things. They were different. And so it was totally acceptable in Jesus' culture to object and dismiss and despise Samaritans. And Jesus said, it's that dude, the dude that you hate, is the one that stopped and tangibly took care of this dude that was on the ground and loved him and served him. And then Jesus ends the story, which I think is so amazing, and he looks at him and says, okay, well, what do you think? Like, who was the neighbor in this story? Who was the hero? Which was basically like uh, telling this story to a hardcore uh, liberal and making him say out loud the hero of the story was a Fox News conservative. (laughs) Or it would be like talking to this deeply conservative fundamentalist Christian and making him say out loud uh, the hero of the story is a coked out frat star. Like that's so uncomfortable and that's why the dude doesn't even say it. If you noticed, he he can't say Samaritan. He says it was the one that showed him mercy. And then Jesus ends the story by saying, Okay, go and do that. You want to be, uh, you want to love God, you want to love your neighbor, go and do that. And he kind of drops the mic and walks away. What he is saying is that love, at its essence, is showing tangible acts of mercy to those that are in need, even if they hate you and even if you hate them. He's saying that's what love is. And so I want to show you, from this little story, I think he's making four really interesting points about what love is in its essence. So I'm just going to walk through these with you. He's going to show us that love is irrational, love is immeasurable, love is imperative, and love is infectious. And how convenient, they all start with I. For you sermon nerds out there. So love is irrational. Love is immeasurable. Love is imperative. Love is infectious. Let's just look at these one at a time. First, love is irrational. Here's a man in desperate need. Here is a man who owes him nothing but hostility. And the Samaritan does what does not make sense. He loves his enemy. And what Jesus is showing you is that gospel love It doesn't make sense. It's not reasonable. It's irrational, which shows you that the flip side is always true as well, that hate and indifference will always make sense to us. Think about it. Somebody posts something on Facebook or social media, and they throw up an article or something that you find so deeply offensive. There is something in you that enjoys getting pissed off at them. That you, see, that you see that they've shown their cards and you're like, oh my gosh. They're one of those kind of people and you dismiss them and write them off and say they've lost all of my respect. And there's something in you that says that makes sense. It feels good even. You're justified in feeling like they think X, that's objectionable, I'm done with them. And what Jesus is showing us is that gospel love will always feel crazy. He is saying there is no such thing as someone that's worthy or unworthy of your love. There's no such thing as someone that's worthy or unworthy of your love. There's no such thing as someone that's forfeited the right for you to love them. So he says, find the most objectionable person that you can think of and go love them. So for many of you, let's talk about your roommates. Uh, Your roommate is selfish And uh, they take over all of the space with all their stuff. Um, They're loud when you're trying to go to sleep. Uh, They have people in your room when you're trying to get in there and study. And you are bitter and you're frustrated and you're resentful towards them. And Jesus is saying that person that every one of you is thinking about because you're all whispering and nudging each other right now. That person that you're thinking about, the person that you... Despise in your heart of hearts, Jesus is saying, that's the person that you need to go love. That's the person. Or maybe you've had this situation where um, within your friend group, there's someone in your friend group that just kind of starts talking smack about you and you didn't know it, but there's this text going around where there's somebody that's just kind of talking dirt about you behind your back and one of your friends shows you kind of this text thread and you immediately feel this sense of rage and anger because you feel betrayed. They've they've damaged your reputation. You thought they were friends and there's something in you that says we are done. They've crossed a line and we're done and it makes sense. It's justifiable for me to write them off and Jesus says that's actually the person that you're called to go love. Jesus is showing us love in this sense is it's crazy, it doesn't make sense. And let's be honest, we hate this. We hate this because we really do think there are lines that when someone crosses that line, they forfeit their right to to be in a relationship with me. They forfeit their right for me to love them. And Jesus is saying there is no line. There There is no person out there that's worthy or unworthy of your love. It's irrational, it doesn't make sense. And if that's confusing and offensive to you, let me just... Jesus cranks the volume up a little bit with this next thing because he now shows us not only is love irrational, it's immeasurable. It's immeasurable, meaning it's limitless. Look at what this Samaritan does to love the guy in the road. First of all, he stops. He stops in a dangerous neighborhood when there's somebody who's been freshly beaten up on the ground, which means the robbers are still kind of close. Like To stop is to put yourself in harm's way. They could easily have targeted him next. It cuts into his safety for him to stop. But it doesn't just cut into his safety. It also cuts into his schedule. He stops. He gives him attention. He brings him to an inn. And it says that he stays with him through the rest of the night. Which means that this dude just gave up the rest of his day to take care of the guy. And if you noticed in verse 35, he says in the morning uh, to the innkeeper, I'll be back to check on him. Which means he's planning on coming back in the future to take care of this dude. Now, this Samaritan uh, had stuff to do. He wasn't just on a donkey ride looking for people to help. He like had to cancel appointments to go help this guy. It's cutting into his schedule to help him. It cuts into his safety. It cuts into his schedule. And last, it cuts into his savings. He gives his resources, his medical attention, his donkey to take the dude to the inn, and then when he takes him to the inn, he gets room service for the dude and then opens up a tab and leaves. It's like he goes to the front desk, gives the dude the credit card and says, whatever you want, whatever it costs, for however long it takes. And that's in some sense what love is. It's immeasurable. Real love is is limitless. Whatever it costs... For however long it takes. I heard this story recently. I mean, I don't have to remind you that um, when the Boston Marathon uh, bombings happened, that there was this uh, kind of police car chase, and the police ended up killing the older of the two brothers that were responsible for that incident. And I didn't know this, but I found out uh, recently that when that older brother died, there was a real complication on where to bury him because no township, no cemetery, nobody wanted his body in their, on their property. And there was this woman that kind of stepped up into the situation. She was a Christian. Her name was Martha Mullen. And she kind of took it upon herself. She had no relation to them. She had no relation to the family. But she just kind of called around and made arrangements and kind of worked some deals and got a, a seminary to basically open up a spot for this guy to be buried in. And NPR was interviewing her, and they asked her this. They say, do you know how unpopular what you did is? Do you know how unpopular what you did is? What in the world motivated you to get involved in this? And here's what she says. Jesus said that we are to love our enemies. And then the NPR looks at him and says, do you realize that you've put yourself in danger by getting involved in this? And her response was, "Jesus made it very clear that the aim of this life is not to be comfortable." I mean, here's this Christian who's stepping into the situation to love her enemy, and now, like it's it's cutting into her safety. Or think about this: there there was a time I don't know if you remember when all of the Ebola stuff was kind of front and center of of our news. There was a time when the only Americans that were uh, infected with the Ebola virus were Christians because they were the ones going in to help and take care of other people that had that virus and they got it themselves. At the risk of their own life, their own safety, their own comfort, they went in and gave it up to love somebody else. And if we're honest, we relate to other people the same way that you relate to your classes at UT. You know, you're in class, uh, the professor's going on about something and somebody asks that amazing million dollar question, is this gonna be on the test? And you know if the professor says no, you immediately don't care. Instantly, this whatever you're saying does not matter to me. Because you're thinking, uh, this doesn't benefit me. This does not help me in any way, whatever you're about to say. Love does not ask that question. Love does not ask the question, what does this benefit me? Love is immeasurable. It's limitless. It has no reference point for your comfort, your safety, your energy, your time, your resources. It says, I'm giving it all away recklessly to serve you. To even ask the question, what do I get out of this, is to misunderstand what love is. Here's where things get real. Because Jesus says, thirdly, that love is imperative. Imperative. It's irrational, it's immeasurable, and it's imperative. In other words, it's necessary. It is not optional. This is why Jesus puts two Bible religious people as the first two characters in the story. Because he's showing you here are two people that know the Bible. They get A's on Bible tests. They know the right answers in small groups. But they don't actually love people. And he's shown us they've, they've missed it. They don't understand what true love is. Um, not too long ago... Actually, I don't know how long ago it was, but somewhere in the federal government decided that we need to start putting the caloric contents of food on the side of the packaging. So, you know, this is very normal to us now. When you go to the grocery store, you pick up something, you can see what are all the ingredients or, uh, you know, fructose, corn syrup that's up in there. You can see everything that's in there, but that wasn't always the case. Somebody decided at one point we need to start putting that information out there and I just I, I found this out recently. They just recently did, you know, they, somebody, smart people, just did a seven-year-long study that just concluded like two years ago. And what they determined was that 85% of Americans agree that that information should be public. Can you, I mean, can you get 85, 85% of Americans to agree on anything? And they agree on, yes... We want caloric content. I need to know how many sugars are in my Oreos when uh, that needs to be on the box. 85%. Seven year study just finished, and what they just concluded is that that information has resulted in no change whatsoever in the eating habits of Americans. No change whatsoever. And what, is, what we learn is that information isn't enough. Information in your head isn't enough to motivate you and what Jesus is saying it works the same way with Bible knowledge you can have all the Bible knowledge you can get A pluses on your Bible test you can be the person in the small group that gets all the answers right and it's not enough if you're not loving someone, love is what is imperative and let's be honest this is really scary for a lot of us because a lot of us grew up in the church and we know the answers, we've heard all of this before And if we're honest, our life is 100% consumed with us. We're just like the two people in the story that are doing a lot of stuff. We're so busy, but we have zero bandwidth for anybody else but us. Because we're going to our meetings to help us. We're going this to help us. We're going to this class to help us. We're doing this study thing to help us. Us, us, us. I mean, you know that college is the most self-absorbed time in your life, right? And it just sets you up on this trajectory of my life is about me, and maybe, maybe, if I have any extra bandwidth, I'll give a little bit to God, I'll give a little bit to other people, but my life's about me. I know, I'm sure, that some of you would probably consider uh, where you are right now is that you're in a spiritual funk. That you say, um, I'm just kind of spiritually numb, I'm kind of spiritually bored, I'm just kind of like blah on the inside, and I don't feel a whole lot of motivation, like try to connect with God or do anything sort of spiritual. And I want to suggest to you that probably one of the best ways to kind of pull out the defibrillators and electroshock your heart into beating again for the Lord is to find someone and love them. Like this. Because my guess is the reason why you're bored and the reason why you're just kind of blah is you're, just, you're gorging on the buffet of yourself and that just kind of gets you to this point where you're just kind of like numb and empty and that you've created no bandwidth. There's, there's no space in your life for anyone else. But Jesus says, do this and you will live. You want to come to life, give away your life. Make space in your life for other people and you will find you actually start coming alive again because you're, just, you're not obsessed with yourself anymore. And that's actually what it means to be a human being. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, here's some suggestions, but to start small. Let's, let's say one hour of your week you carve out to just initiate a conversation with somebody else that you don't really know and to make that whole hour just about them. Ask them questions and listen. Let them know that you care about the details of their life. One hour. Or, I don't know, think of two people that you might kind of be in your sphere of influence and say, these two people, I'm going to invest in, I'm going to pour into, I'm going to give my life up for them, to care for them, to pray for them. I don't know. Maybe there's that person in your class that's like struggling and you know you could help them. You could tutor them. I don't know. Whatever y'all do in your classes. To make space for other people. I don't know. Maybe in a couple of weeks when we go back to food in the fort and uh, serve some food and and provide groceries uh, for some of our homeless friends that you join us and kind of rub shoulders with people that you wouldn't rub shoulders with. I don't know what it would look like for you, but Jesus is saying this isn't optional. You want to know what it means to be a Christian, it's this. Love God, love people. Love is imperative. And the last thing is that love is infectious. Because um, the good news is we just need to admit that we don't do this. We don't really love people that well. We try maybe, but we're, we're really great at loving us. The only way that we'll break out of the self-absorbed, inward-curved obsession with ourselves and start pouring ourselves out for other people, the only way you'll love like this is to know and to experience that you've been loved like this. That love is infectious. When you experience love like this, it starts to awaken love in you. And here's what's unbelievably brilliant, I think, about this story. Jesus had, he could have set it up any way he wanted, Right? He's talking to this Jewish scholar and he could have said, okay, here's the story of a Samaritan beaten and bloody on the ground and this Jewish guy walks up and the Jewish guy helps him and I'll go and do that. And the Bible scholar would have looked at him and said, that's a stupid story. Like Jewish people don't help out somebody. We hate Samaritans. The right thing would do, you know, for him to do would be to walk by this Samaritan and spit on him and curb stomp him and keep walking. Like That's what would be a a great response. But Jesus doesn't do that. He switches the roles and he says, you, the Jewish person, are the one dead in the ground and your enemy comes up and helps you. And what he's asking, he's looking at this guy and he's looking at you and he's saying, what if it's true that you're the person that's beaten up and bloodied on the ground and your life has fallen apart and what if it's true that your only hope was an act of free grace from somebody that owed you nothing but hostility. What if that's you? You will never love like this unless you put yourself in the story as the person dead on the ground. That your life has been beaten and bloodied up by your own doings. And your only hope was an act of free grace from God who comes along and has every right to obliterate you with wrath and judgment, but he doesn't. Instead, he serves you at immense cost to himself. That Jesus liquidates everything that he has in order to serve you. It cuts into his schedule, it cuts into his savings, it cuts into his life, it cuts into his blood. He, he liquidates everything. He gives up every resource that he has, his own life, in order to serve you, in order to care for you, when he didn't have to. And when you are on the receiving end of that kind of love, knowing here we are, we are self-absorbed, we are narcissistic, we are self-interested, we don't love anybody but ourselves. He has every right to just wipe us off the face of the earth, and he doesn't. He pours himself out in irrational, immeasurable ways for us. When you receive that, it's infectious. It it liberates you to start loving people in the way that you were meant to. It liberates you to love people like this. So let me end, I'll end with this. Uh, this is a story, some of you have heard me tell this before. It's a story I heard in the news a couple of years ago. Unbelievable, true story. It took place in Massachusetts. There's this old, uh, older man, Juan Rodriguez, is the clerk of this little corner store, this little like 7-Eleven spot. And he's in there reading his Bible, believe it or not, and um, in walks this 20-year-old that walks up to the counter and pulls out a knife and starts demanding money from the register. So Juan Rodriguez is able to distract him long enough to kind of pull out a baseball bat and starts chase, like chasing the dude out of the store. So if you picture this on the street, you've got this 55 year old man with a baseball bat chasing this 20 year old down the street. And he's calling out for help. help, help, stop him, stop him. And there's this group of guys that are kind of on the corner there and they see what's happening. And so they run over and just kind of bum rush the 20 year old and tackle him and take him down long enough to just kind of get him on the ground. And so Juan Rodriguez kind of runs up to the scene, pulls out a cell phone, calls the police. While he's on the phone with the 911 operator, there's this kind of mob that has formed around this would be robber, and he's on the ground. And this mob starts punching and kicking and starts ripping off his clothes. He's stripped down to his underwear, and there's just like this mob that's just beating him. Juan Rodriguez sees it, drops his phone, runs over to the mob, elbows his way in, and throws himself on top of the guy that just stuck a knife in his face. To shield him, to protect him. So now, the boots are slamming into the, his ribs, the fists are raining down upon his skull, his back, and the mob is now beating him until they eventually stop. And the robber's life is spared. He was taken to the hospitals in critical condition, but his life was spared. I think that's an ama- That's just such an amazing picture. It's an amazing story because here's this guy who stuck a knife in his face, and that person who owed him nothing but hostility was the one that absorbed all of the punishment that he deserved. And that's us. We are the ones that have stuck our knife in God's face, our middle finger in God's face, and said, I know you want me to love you and love everybody else. Don't really care about that. Only interested in loving me. And God has every right to be a part of just raining down his wrath and his judgment upon us, but he doesn't. He sends Jesus who covers us, who shields us, who absorbs the punishment we deserve in our place to heal us, to save us. He dies so that you might live. That is love. And when you've been on the receiving end of that, in response to that, Jesus looks at you and me and he says, go and do likewise. Let me pray. Father, I pray that we would be the kind of people that know and drink deeply and experience your irrational love for us, your immeasurable love for us. How deep and how wide. It's just, it's, in some sense, it doesn't even make sense that you would love us so graciously that you would pour out everything for your enemies. And I pray that that would so sink into our own hearts and transform us from the inside out so that we would be a group of people right here on this campus that that even in small ways we would be a community of people that pour out our own lives for other people people that we think might not deserve it but we do it anyway people that we really can't stand but we love them anyway pray that you would do a great work in my own heart I have much to repent of and I pray that you would begin with me and enable me and enable these folks here to be a community that knows your love and likewise turns it around and loves other people with it